My name is Virginia Morris. I am a member of the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs. Today, we are joined by Sir Brian Urquhart, whose extraordinary career with the United Nations spanned more than four decades, from 1945 to 1986, when he retired as Undersecretary General for Special Political Affairs. Sir Brian was involved in setting up the organization. He worked closely with the first five Secretaries General of the United Nations, and he played a leading role in the development of United Nations peacekeeping operations. He is the author of numerous articles and books about the United Nations, including his memoirs entitled A Life in Peace and War. Welcome, Sir Brian. Thank you for joining us today. I would first like to ask you to share your views concerning the role of the United Nations in a changing world. But before we start discussing the changes in the world, perhaps you'd like to say a few things about the adoption of the Charter and the expectations of the uh, international community when the organization was being set up. Well, the Charter uh, was deliberately uh, formulated in San Francisco while the war was still going on because President Roosevelt had been Secretary of the Navy in the First World War and Versailles took place some months after the war had stopped and had no sense of urgency or indeed realism about what it was, his ultimate obje objective was and it was a considerable disaster as a result. But that did have a downside because uh, the United Nations, uh, the title actually referred to United Nations United in War. It came in 1941. Uh, and in 1942, President Roosevelt uh, rather cleverly summoned 26 nations to Washington and they signed a document which was a declaration of the United Nations which put the Allied side neatly in the, in the legitimate box because they referred to themselves throughout as the United Nations. In fact, Germany and Japan surrendered to the United Nations, not to the Allies. And this was an important and I think perhaps not sufficiently recognized fact because it greatly influenced what happened afterwards. When the United Nations came into existence at San, uh, well, after San Francisco with the Preparatory Commission in London and then here in the United States. Um, it was already uh, seriously out of date. In the first place, uh, I think about two people at San Francisco knew that, that there had been a nuclear test and there was going to be a nuclear attack on uh, Japan. And of course, this was a, a, an absolutely huge uh, and, to my mind, a fairly disastrous development in human history. And so that the, the military and security part of the charter looks a little bit old-fashioned because it doesn't even mention nuclear weapons. Uh, secondly, it, the, the assumption was that the wartime alliance would survive to monitor the peace and, if necessary, enforce it. And the institution of the five permanent members of the Security Council was, uh, symbolized that fact. Uh, and the unfortunate truth was that within, within two years, uh, the so-called Cold War had started. And far from being the great disinterested group of, uh, of important countries the United States, the uh, Soviet Union, China, the United Kingdom, and France uh, impartially dictating world peace to the world. Uh, they had become the major threat to world peace due to the nuclear arms race. 
And that was a cloud that hung over the UN for 40 years, an enormous thundercloud. And as a result of that, the underlying objective, which they never stated, of governments in the UN was to somehow or other avoid a nuclear war between the East and the West. And if you look at particularly Doug Hammarskjöld's efforts and the invention of peacekeeping and the control of conflicts in, regional, in regions and so on, it's really all to do with that. Um, I think that the Security Council, which is now a somewhat antiquated body and reflects the military situation in 1945, uh, was more or less paralyzed by the Cold War. It uh, exercised it full, its full powers once in Korea using Chapter 7 and the full use of force to deal with aggression from North Korea because the Soviet Union had absented itself very foolishly. Uh, in protest against the non-seating of the People's Republic of China. Taiwan was the representative of China. They never did anything like that again. No Soviet ambassador ever left the council chamber while it was in session for the next 35 years. Uh, but that was a sort of one rather kind of peripheral but very important uh, use of the full mechanism of the charter. It wasn't used again until the uh, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, where again the full uh, uh, use of Chapter 7, which was the great innovation in the Charter, uh, was used. Uh, so I, I think what one has to look at the first 40 years of the UN is as trying to find constructive ways to get around this somewhat moribund uh, organization, which was supposed to be the dynamo of the whole organization, the Security Council. It was stuck on its main subject, which was the maintenance of international peace and security. You mentioned the Cold War and how this affected uh, the work of the organization and in many ways complicated it. Were there new opportunities, new challenges presenting themselves to the United Nations as a result of the Cold War ending some 40 or so years later? Well, of course, at the, in, at the end of the Cold War and also at the end of the Soviet Union, incidentally, uh, there was a, a tendency for everybody to throw their hats in, her, in the air and open the champagne and saying the UN could now function as it was set up to do. This, I think, completely underestimated the, the, the rather dismal reality of national politics. Uh, it wasn't anything like as, as easy as everybody thought to do all the things that everybody wanted to do uh, in 1990 as a result of being liberated from the Cold War. It certainly did make a great difference. The UN conducted one more or less model Chapter 7 uh, operation uh, in it to get Saddam Hussein's army out of Kuwait. Uh, but after that things got very difficult and, and understandably so because the world by that time had changed a great deal and the old, uh, well, when I say old, I mean since 1956, technique of peacekeeping, which was a UN invention, it wasn't in the Charter at all, which was using military forces, not using force. Um, the, 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 trying to apply that technique to the kind of problems there were in the 1990s, which were mostly within sovereign states, proved to be very difficult. And also, these were operations which included a great deal of civilian functions uh, and a lot of humanitarian work. These were dealing with civil wars and that kind of thing, wars within countries. And this was a completely different 
idea. This was not what peacekeeping was originally set up for. Peacekeeping was set up to control conflicts between countries, uh, regional conflicts, which, if they were left untended, might set fire to the main East-West nuclear conflict. I mean, the Middle East, in Africa, various times in Cyprus, in Kashmir, and so on. Returning to nuclear weapons for a second, one of the first challenges that you were involved in when you joined the organization was um, the possibility of dealing with nuclear weapons at a very early stage, and yet that, that seemed to have been a failure, speaking of the, the Baruch plan and all of that. Yes, well, there are various fairly scabrous views of the Baruch plan now. I mean, it was perfectly clear that the Soviet Union, was, which had an extremely good uh, scientific establishment, as good as the United States, but they had not uh, got to a nuclear bomb and hadn't even tried to make one during the war. And the moment the United States showed that they had one, which the Soviet Union knew, they set about making their own to keep the balance, understandably enough. And once they were doing that, they weren't going to put all uh, nuclear weaponry under international control, which is what the Baruch plan wanted to do. And I think the United States knew perfectly well, knew that. They, so they proposed a plan, which they too would have had trouble with, knowing perfectly well the Soviet Union would not have it. If you want to read a real old-fashioned stem-winding speech, you want to read Baruch's speech presenting the Baruch plan, which has some amazing rhetoric in it. Well, we've talked about some major changes in the world since 1945, the, the use of nuclear weapons, the beginning of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. Another major change has occurred with respect to the membership of the organization itself. The United Nations began with some 51 member states in 1945. By the 1960s, the membership of the organization had more than doubled with the emergence of newly independent states following decolonization. Today, the organization has 192 member states, almost four times as many in 1945. How has the change in the membership of the organization affected the work of the United Nations? Well, I would say to a tremendous and fundamental degree. When it became clear that the Soviet Union was going to veto a great number of ideas from the West in the Security Council, the West briefly took to the General Assembly and the Atchison Plan, for example, allows something which in many people think is a violation of the Charter, which is if, if a, a threat to peace and security gets stymied by, the, by a veto in the Security Council, it can be transferred by a simple majority to the General Assembly. Because the General Assembly was the playground of the Western powers, the Soviet Union was a tiny, it was in a very small minority. And the first thing that really went out the window of that was, uh, was, was when uh, decolonization kicked in and we began to get enormous numbers of new member states. There's another very curious irony about that, that, uh, that uh, it was the United States which was the, was the driving force in pushing decolonization for all, I think, the right reasons. And uh, certainly Ralph Bunch, who was the, I suppose, the most influential uh, member of the Secretariat after the Secretary General in those days, was a tremendous uh, influence in this. He was the person, he ran the trusteeship department, and he also had written the two chapters of the charter, uh, one on trusteeship and one on decolonization, uh, and uh, figured out a number of ways to push that process on. Uh, I was told, I remember, by a very pompous person in the British Foreign Office in 1945 when I first joined the UN that there was no point in worrying about decolonization. It would take over 100 years. It actually took just over 20. 
And this, I think, was a, was a great achievement of the United Nations to be the catalyst in what promised to be an extremely bloody and difficult uh, uh, development, which was taking these very large, particularly the British, very large colonial empires away from European countries. And it actually went through with extraordinarily little violence and was a face safer both uh, particularly for the former colonial powers. But it did uh, cause in the 1960s an avalanche of new members. And it completely changed the voting balance in the General Assembly, which meant that the Western powers who had thought the, the Assembly was better than the Security Council went back to the Security Council again. And it's ironical that the United States, which had been their great champion in getting independence, was the, in a curious kind of way, the, 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 the target of much of the rhetoric of the newly uh, liberated uh, countries. And that is, in fact, in turn, uh, alienated the kind of bipartisan middle international group in the Congress. So we lost it. We lost that support, which was extremely important to the UN. I mean, this was a, a curious set of ironies. Well, the other thing that changed, possibly more important in the long run, uh, was the whole emphasis of the work of the UN, which turned to development, uh, to poverty, to um, various rights. The Human Rights Declaration, which I suppose was the most important single event of the first 10 years of the United Nations, uh, had an enormous effect on constitution writing in the new countries. The fact that violations of human rights still go on in many of those countries uh, is unfortunately also true. But it was important that it did set this new standard, which had not been set before. For example, uh, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford in the 1930s, we were all very left-wing, obviously. And uh, we, did, we were always demonstrating about for things like the treatment of the Jews in, in Nazi Germany and so on. And then one or two of us would be allowed in to present a petition. And the Foreign Office spokesman would always say, um, well, you do understand that we can't interfere in, the, interfere in the domestic affairs of a friendly European country. And then one would say, friendly? Quite sure. And then they said, absolutely, Germany and so on. This was in 1936. And there was no uh, international standard by which uh, one country could protest a violation of human rights uh, in another. And I think that was a hugely important thing. And it was very important and still is very important in the development of the, what was then called the third world or the developing world. I mean, I think you have to look at the, at the, the third world as a group of states which due to imperialism and colonial status, really missed the Industrial Revolution. They were the, they were the producers of raw materials. And this set them back tremendously in the industrialization which had made so many Western countries rich and powerful. And I think that the UN set out to try to even up that, that extreme inequality and is still doing it. And that changed the agenda very much. The other thing that changed, of course, they did provide a very useful balancing group in the, in the Cold War. There was, they, they, among other things, converted themselves into the non-aligned group, which did not take sides uh, in the East-West ideological battle uh, and wished to be left alone by both sides. And I th politically, at any rate. And I think that was very important for the UN, and it was very, it was very positive. Let me ask you a, a <clears throat> fundamental question. 
the United Nations Charter, now that we've discussed some of the changes, some of the, the new challenges and some of the successes of the United Nations, the United Nations Charter was adopted more than a half century ago. Has this document withstood the, set, the test of time? Is the organization able to respond to these new challenges and opportunities? I mean, the, the, the Charter was, was, was written and adopted as Roosevelt had foreseen. Uh, at, a, at, a, at a particular time when people's attention was still riveted on the war and their governments included and they were still very conscious of what a really appalling six years it had been and for some people much longer like China for example and uh, therefore I very much doubt if you could get anything like the Charter adopted today it would be extremely difficult to do and the general principles of the Charter, I think, are, you really don't need too much to change them, uh, if at all. Some of the mechanisms may be a little bit out of date, but I think, well, it's like the old saying, old English children say, and so children always stick to nurse for fear of finding something worse. I mean, it's very unlikely you could get a document of that quality adopted now. It's an extremely good guide to principle. It does impose certain obligations, which are still important. Uh, for example, the, the uh, mandatory nature of for the Security Council's resolutions. I don't think you could get that adopted today. It has manifest problems, for example, the veto. But after all, it wouldn't have been adopted at all because the United States and the Soviet Union would not have signed a document which did not include the veto. And the veto does have a, a, a rational basis as well as seeming to be a frivolous and monstrous piece of, of, uh, of favoritism to the great powers. Without the veto, it would be perfectly possible for the Security Council to vote by a majority to, to, to go to war with one of the, with one of the permanent members. Uh, what changes, if any, would enable the United Nations to more effectively perform its functions either now or, or in the future? Yes, I'm sorry you asked me that. Actually, uh, I have a rather a, a, a rather longish list of things that I think ought to be done. Okay. I, I uh, first of all, uh, the unlike the, the scientific world, the commercial world, the world of great corporations, the academic world, and most of the other sort of centers of human activity, have less and less to, to do with national sovereignty. They really have, particularly with globalization, they have communications and so on, they have become something very much more than national. But the United Nations is founded on national sovereignty. It is the building blocks of the United Nations and it is the one place where national sovereignty retains almost more than its former uh, glory and influence. And I, I think that's inevitable. I, people always skate around this problem. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it, when we can't get an agreement on Kosovo because of the history of the relationship of Russia to, to Serbia, um, people never say that this is an exercise in national sovereignty. They say that it's very unreasonable of the Soviet Union. Uh, we just had an example of national sovereignty being claimed uh, to prevent two million people probably from being uh, unable to survive in the Irrawaddy Delta in, Delta in, in Burma or Myanmar. Uh, and, and it is a, a, a classic case also of a different kind is in Darfur where 
though the Security Council has adopted some fairly strong uh, resolutions on this, without the cooperation of the Sudan government, uh, nothing is going to really happen to alleviate that really terrible situation. Personally, I think there has to be a discussion, uh, a serious uh, open discussion, possibly in groups, uh, not necessarily publicly for the first time. Of this, this is the major problem of making the UN work. And it didn't need to be the abolition of national sovereignty. What it has to be is for governments to think of a way in which you can balance uh, the importance of national sovereignty with the equal importance of international responsibility. When the Security Council or some other body after a great deal of effort manages to make the, to make a decision on something, it is very important that it should not be tripped up at the other end by the by the uh, Burmese junta or someone like that. And I, I think that that has to be done because it, you will never find a debate on anything like that in in, in, in the in the records of the UN and there hasn't, hasn't been one. And until they do that, it's going to be very difficult to push the UN uh, into the world of globalization, into the world of larger and more desperate natural disasters, and into the world of, of, of the, um, the responsibility to protect this great principle which was adopted with fanfare in 2005 by all the heads of state uh, here in New York. Uh, I mean, I think it seems to me this is, this is really getting ahead of the game. What we need to do is to, is to discover how governments are going to adapt themselves to the new circumstances which do require uh, letting international responsibility really play a much more, a much less restricted role in the great problems which are before us. I mean, there are plenty of them too. I, I think that, and I've been boring everybody stiff for years about this, I think that for an organization which is supposed to maintain international peace and security, the UN is pathetically incapable of responding effectively and immediately. I mean within 24 or 48 hours. We used to be able to do this, curiously enough, when we first started peacekeeping. We got the first troops to um, to uh, Egypt after the Suez crisis uh, within 10 days. Nobody thought this was possible, but we did it. We got the first 3,000 troops into the Congo in three days. Uh, but, but normally the time is several months, and it's increasingly difficult to get really uh, high-quality troops for peacekeeping. And uh, indeed, a lot of Western countries seem to be rather opting out of that now, and I think that's a pity. And there is also, uh, growing up, a, 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 a tendency for governments to say that uh, in Sudan we only want African troops, or in Burma now the generals have said, well, we'll only take uh, friendly nations, which means goodbye the United Kingdom and the United States and France. This is not a help when you're looking at the death of two million people as a possibility. And I think that, that there has to be, sooner or later, a small standing, enormously highly trained, rapid reaction group, which will be military but also with a large civilian element, which can be mobilized very quickly, which is trained to deal with this kind of situation, which is totally international. In its, in its membership, 
and uh, which uh, resents, uh, does not resent any country because it will have nationals of all countries and will be a genuinely UN force. Now, whether it's too late to do that politically, I'm not sure. It's never, this is, is very unpopular, I'd hardly say, or used to be in Washington, where it's considered a heresy. Though it's interesting to see that the greatest speech ever made about this was made by Ronald Reagan. After he ceased to be president, he made a speech in Oxford in 1993, I think it was, which said it was, this was when we had all hell breaking loose in the Balkans saying that it was a crying shame and a terrible thing that the UN did not have a standing peacekeeping army. Um, so that it hasn't always been considered impossible. Uh, and, and I do think that if the UN is to be taken seriously, it's going to, have, going to have to have some kind of group which can get there before a situation sort of metastasizes. If you can get into a conflict situation or a, or a, a domestic conflict situation before a great deal of blood has been shed uh, and before people are engaging in revenge, uh, you can quite often almost stop it or stop it. If you wait for three months, it is, doesn't work. And, and, um, and I think we've learned that the hard way. I think that I personally think that uh, the Secretariat and the Secretary General uh, are the success story of the last, whatever it is, 65 years. The Secretary General is the only part of the United Nations which has radically changed. The Secretary General, when I joined the UN, was the Chief Administrative Officer of the organization with a tiny little window to some kind of very regulated political activities, Article 99 and the the bringing matters to the Security Council, which in his opinion uh, affected international peace and security. Uh, he now is, I think starting with the, with the extraordinary performance of Doug Hamschild, the UN, is, the UN Secretary General is now the world's moderator, his relief man, everything. And, and I think that, that, that it's very important that the, sec the Secretary obtain the position that it has in the Charter as a main organ of the United Nations. There is a fashion now to say that it's all nonsense about having a permanent international civil service and we ought to use people seconded by governments so we don't get people devoting their whole life. If we do this, uh, this will be a, a wrecking operation which will completely destroy the capacity of the UN to act as an impartial and and positive uh, force in the world. And I, I think, I don't know why people don't attach more importance to that. Uh, Doug Hammarskjöld fought this battle against the Soviet Union just before he died. And he said uh, something to the effect that, uh, that, uh, he, that he thought that if the Secretary General ceased to be a competent, completely uh, 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 ob objective, uh, and uh, a body of integrity belonging only to the UN, uh, it would be the 1914 of international organization. I think there's something in that. I, and I don't personally think much of the present, the present uh, idea that in some way the Secretariat is a nuisance and needs to be cut down and eventually abolished as an international organization. Um, two other things I would like to mention. 
Uh, Hammarskjöld, I keep quoting Hammarskjöld because he's the only Secretary General who really appears to have had time to think in the very long term and to write quite a lot of very readable statements about it. And one of the things that he felt one should try to do as Secretary General uh, by pushing the boat very slowly forward into the mid midstream by small actions uh, was to eventually see the UN develop from an institution where you have meetings and so on, but it doesn't really have any constitutional power, into a constitutional entity which has agreed uh, legal constitutional powers. Not a world government, but something getting there. Because if you don't do that, it's, it's, going to be, it's not going to be able to cope with a globalized world. I think that's still very important. The other thing that's always occurred to me is that the UN is not a democratic institution. Democracy is not mentioned in the Charter. We keep hearing speeches about democracy in the General Assembly, uh, but in fact, it isn't. And I think that sooner or later, the governments have got to think of doing something about that, and it might also be very healthy to do. The European Union, which is of course much ahead of in institutional development of a, of a, of a world body, because it's, Europe is more or less a kind of a homogeneous entity culturally. Uh, the European Union has a European Parliament, which is, which is elected. Uh, and I think the UN gradually has got to get into the idea of having some kind of people's assembly which balances the general assembly, which is an organization of governments. And it's very often governments which don't particularly represent the feelings of their own people. And I think that that, that, that again is a long-term thing, but I think people should think about it.